0: We come back together. This morning, we start a series on uh, leadership in the church, uh, the marks of uh, leaders and leadership in the church. Uh, The length of it is to be determined. We're going to keep talking about it until I understand what on earth we're talking about. Uh, Trying to unpack what it means to exemplify and embody the biblical understanding of those who lead you and lead God's people as Christ's under-shepherds, as those called to model and encourage uh, Christ-like character uh, and to encourage God's people in the fullness of the kingdom of God. And it is, uh, I hope, uh, as I am known to do, Uh, that any critique I have, right, is, you know, the old line about like if you point at somebody else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. I hope you will take everything that is said in the understanding that I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to you. Hopefully that is regularly true of my preaching, but certainly uh, this morning and for the next few weeks as we unpack the biblical understanding and calling of what it is to be leaders in Christ's church. It is... uh, Uh, tomorrow, providentially, which is Martin Luther King Day, where we remember a pastor who was certainly not without flaws, but was used by God to do an amazing uh, calling of this nation to act in justice and in mercy, to uh, challenge the church uh, in the United States, particularly the segregated church in the United States, to embody some of the characteristics and ethics of the kingdom of God. And one of the, uh, the famous incidents early on in his work uh, was his time in the Birmingham jail. And he wrote some pretty amazing letters that were influential in setting the structure of that movement and underpinning its commitment to nonviolence, and yet its commitment to continue to exert a fair amount of pressure. I want to read just a, a, a small section, most, well, I guess it's most of the letters that some concerned pastors uh, of the white church in Birmingham wrote to the uh, protesters, and particularly to Martin Luther King Jr., their concerns uh, about how things were going, and their request that things might get a little bit more quiet, shall we say. And I hope what happens over the time of these next couple of sermons is that as we begin to unpack what it is that God calls his church to do, we might have context for which we can evaluate whether the leadership encouraged here is one of infinite pragmatism, uh, but perhaps uh, less kingdom uh, encouragement. We, the undersigned clergymen, are among those who, in January, issued an appeal for law and order and common sense, phrases which are very handy if you're in charge. In dealing with racial problems in Alabama, we expressed understandings and honest conviction in racial matters could properly be pursued in the courts, but urged that decisions of this court should, in the meantime, be peaceably obeyed. Since that time, there had been even some evidence of increasing forbearance and a willingness to face facts. Responsible citizens have undertaken to work on various problems which cause racial friction and unrest. In Birmingham, recent public events have given indication that we all have opportunity for new constructive and realistic approach to the racial problems. However, we are now confirmed by a series of demonstrations by some of our Negro citizens, directed and led in part by outsiders. We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized. But we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. There's no question that the men who wrote that loved Jesus. There's no question that those men loved their congregations. And there's no question that many of them in their churches were already beginning to quietly undo. One of the Baptist ministers who signed that had recently got in trouble for seating an African American in his congregation on Easter Sunday. And yet when we look and encourage what it means for us to lead God's church, there, are room, there is room for growth. And so both as we commend, we are also called ever greater degrees to follow the king and to embody in his people those things which are true of him. The problem starts early on. In leadership. Uh, it starts all the way back in Genesis. And so let us put the text in front of us this morning, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden'?" And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruits of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves uh, together and made themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, You are the only good and true king. You are the only faithful leader of your people. You sent your son that we might have opportunity and the freedom again to be your children. You have given us everything. You have given us yourself. We pray that as we reflect again on the great privilege and calling of being your children and in some cases, Lord, encouraging and leading in the offices of your church. We pray that it would be encouraging to the body to know again what it is to be humble servants of a humble God. And we pray that whatever is said this morning that is not useful or true, that those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So as most of you know, uh, I'm quite fond of of suggesting that really you can start everything in Genesis. Everything does start in Genesis. And God's people uh, then see the unpacking of both the good and the bad and the ugly of Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4-ish in the rest of Scripture. And so it is uh, for us this morning to contemplate not simply the silence of Adam, but the conscious acts of Adam and Eve and what it tells us about our need for leadership that is going to be different than that which comes, unfortunately, so naturally, this side of the fall. We're going to look at leadership uh, in the reality that it needs to comfort, it needs to confront, and it calls us forward. We need leadership that confronts, I'm sorry, comforts, confronts, and calls. Now, of course, we're going to have to spend a lot of time in the New Testament because the only one who's going to set Adam's poor example right is Jesus doing that which Adam should have done to begin with. And so we are going to, and if you want to put your finger in places like the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, And basically just all of the Gospels, just sort of put your fingers in various random texts, you will no doubt find incidences where Jesus is working against and modeling something different than Adam. So we're going to start with comforts. If you look at the text, uh, there is the presence of Adam and Eve is being tempted. Eve is being tempted to doubt the goodness of God. Uh, She's being tempted to doubt the goodness of God in uh, his provision for them. God won't let you eat of any of the fruit. She has the beginnings of a response there. But then also, fundamentally, that God is untrustworthy and a liar. This side of glory, it is not uncommon For our hearts to be tempted, as Eve's was, to doubt the goodness of God. Our circumstances often give us the impression that God is absent or uncaring, that the sin and death we engage in and that we are victims of seem to undermine the notion of a present and living God. What if he denied you Reasonable sustenance. What if he hid the knowledge from you that would give you the ability to have more control and comfort and security in your life? What if he's not trustworthy? Now, some of this happens in the midst of uh, great social turmoil. Some of it happens in individual lives. And what we see in the Gospels is Jesus' regular affirmation of the goodness of who God is. And if we turn to the Gospel of Matthew and we begin to read the Beatitudes, we see that Jesus is affirming in the positive God's blessing for those who seem to be most vulnerable. He comforts first. As many challenges as there are in the Sermon on the Mount, as much as he unpacks the depth of human need and the real joy and freedom of following the law, yet convicting of how far I am from embracing God's heart. He first comforts. Blessed are the meek, the poor, the spiritually needy, for they will be blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is comfort, You're being tempted to doubt the goodness of God. Adam is silent. At times when Adam, in his role, as a spiritual leader in this situation, had opportunity to say, no, dear wife, remember, this is what God has said. Here is how he's revealed himself. There was nothing. There was, I don't believe, the domestication of cats yet. So the cat had not gotten his tongue. There was nothing limiting Adam's ability to say as he stood next to Eve, let me remind you and comfort you about the goodness of God. Remember what he did. Remember how he put us together. Remember how he took you from me and made you, that you and I might share the image of God. He's denied no good thing from us. He's given us fellowship with one another. He's given us unbroken fellowship with Him. Has He ever failed to answer a question? Yes, does He sometimes encourage us to find the answers? But He's never denied us anything. He has warned us. He's given us a means by which we can show our faithfulness to Him. But He has denied us nothing. It is a calling of leaders to comfort God's people in the face of death and sin and lies. Some of that may be brought about by calamity calamity brought on us by former generations, by things happening halfway around the world that you and I have no control over, that are going to rob us of jobs. Rob us of health, rob us of our finances, rob us of clean air. There are things outside of our control, and leadership at that point, according to God, is in Christ-like ways going to point people back to the faithfulness of God, to comfort them in the goodness of God. Not given to fear and not given to silence. We don't know Adam's motivation for being silent. I have way too much fun speculating. But he was silent. He did not comfort. When the goodness of God was challenged, when God was called a liar to his face and his wife's face, he said nothing. When Jesus is taken out into the wilderness and faces three temptations, which are very similar in substance to the temptation of Adam and Eve, Jesus speaks. He speaks truth. When he is called to lead and teach his disciples, he doesn't just act, he speaks. John calls him the Word made flesh. The world was made through him but did not know him. Why didn't it know him? Partially because it didn't know what to look for. Our view of leadership, our view of what it means to be a leader, rarely involves the kind of comfort that Jesus expresses. It's not comfort in what I can do for you. It's not comfort in what you can do for yourself. It's not even just a vague sense of comfort. It'll all work out in the end. It is comfort oriented towards the nature and character of God. It's not vague comfort. Jesus points his followers and hearers to the goodness of God himself that they can rest assured that, yes, of course, I could turn this stone into bread. But the reason for this gift is the ability to show the goodness of God. And so, yes, I will feed 5,000 people with almost nothing. I'll feed 3,000 people with almost nothing. And I'll give all of humanity my very body and blood. I will feed you because God is a loving God, because he gives himself. You know, that word servant, I think we've mentioned it before, a helper, Azer, uh, E-Z-E-E-R, is sort of the Hebrew literation in English, right? The, the, the I will give you a helper, as Eve is described. Uh, and we talked a few weeks back about how the majority of times that that word is used in the Old Testament is God's help for humanity. The 16 times that it is used outside of referencing Eve, is all about God being a helper to his people. He comforts, he helps, he comes alongside. The greater comforting the weaker. So again, is it simply sympathizing in comfort? It's no less than that. But it is pointing one another to the surety of who God is. That is the opportunity that Adam missed. To comfort his wife in the goodness of God, even though facing strong temptation. It is what Jesus does in unpacking in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say that he is going to instantaneously make illness and suffering and spiritual dark nights of the soul disappear. He says the goodness of God will meet you in those places and bring you through. He doesn't undo Psalm 23 and say the good news is there will just be the feast at the end. But Jesus models and leads us through the reality that this side of his coming, he comforts us with the character of God. We want to give more as leaders. We want to give sometimes pragmatics. We want to fix it. I would contend that if we're going to undo the problems of leadership that begin in the garden, the first one is going to be that we encourage and train and exemplify as leaders, men and women in the church. Titus 2, women Older men, elected and unelected leaders of the church, is the basis of our comfort, the character of God. Second, confronts. There are two opportunities for Adam to confront in this text that are missed. One is the serpent. You really need to put that forked tongue back between your teeth. It's, it's Again, I think I've said this before. I try and meditate every once in a while. It's just so common for people to express to us that God is a liar. It's, it's kind of in the air we breathe. Every once in a while, I'm not sure whether or not he's always telling the truth. Because I doubt. Because my life is incongruent from what I like. Or what I think God should give me. Is God really good? But to call God a liar, as the serpent does in our text, you will not die. God said you will. I'm telling you, you won't. God is a liar. That's the first time, to the best of our knowledge, that God is called a liar in all of existence, all time and space, all pre-time and space. Before the foundations of the world, pretty sure angels didn't randomly sort of say, well, you know, I think you're full of baloney. Just not a common thing. And I don't mean to make light of it any more than trying to say, how do we contemplate how horrifying that statement really is? How is it that Adam and Eve did not run in terror? How is it that their ears didn't burn when the serpent calls God a liar? my stars of anything. We must have leaders that do not allow us to marinate in the idea without direct confrontation. Whatever we're talking about, what we do know is that God tells us truth. I may not understand it exactly. I may need you to help me unpack it. But what I do know is that God is not a liar. And when we cleverly raise the idea that God is not a truth teller. We need to be confronted. Now that confrontation may be very direct and loud, like Jesus walking through the portico for the Gentiles in the temple where they had set up all of the very needful money changing and selling of animals that you couldn't take several days to the temple for sacrifices, all of the pragmatics of needing a place to change money into temple money and to have animals for sacrifice after a long journey, all of that pragmatics, the problem was it had filled up the only place that the Gentiles could get close to God. They had turned the house of God into the place where that work got done. And Jesus is rather direct In saying, when God says, I will make you a blessing to the nations, your leaders shouldn't say, you know, the place where we can open up the bazaar is in the place to be a blessing to the nations. God didn't really mean it. Certainly, pragmatically, we only have so much room. We're not putting it in the narthex. Adam does not confront the serpent. Jesus confronts the tempter in the wilderness. He confronts him at every point along his road. Every time he confronts the deceiver in the form of one demonic possession after another, it is with the truth of who God is and where power really resides. Confronts him with truth. The second place, of course, is actually Eve. Uh, Eve needed to be confronted in what appears to be a fencing of the law uh, in saying we can't even touch it. There needed to be a clarification and a correction on Adam's part. Eve, that's not what I said. What I said was we couldn't eat it because that's what God said to me. And we don't want to lower the bar because some of the scholars say that there is a way in which if Eve takes it and doesn't die instantaneously and she's put in her mind that there's a progression that if she keeps taking one step after another and she doesn't drop dead then maybe i can take the next step. And that notion of beginning to play with sin, to look at it, to hold it, to contemplate it, to imagine if it might impart the desire or the pleasure or the wisdom that we are being tempted to think it will needs to be confronted. How to do this lovingly and graciously depends on the person. Again, I love the Gospel of John where you have Nicodemus and then the woman at the well in nearly consecutive chapters. Nicodemus is addressed one way. He's supposed to know things. Jesus is firmer yet loving, but he won't allow him to entertain false notions of who God is. He confronts his understanding of who the Lord God is and how you interact with Him. In the same way, with the woman at the well, he confronts the fact that her sexual sin, Nicodemus's theological sin, is addressed by Jesus. The sexual sin at the woman at the well is addressed by Jesus. Both are confronted, but both are confronted with truth and love. Adam is simply silent. There is often a temptation in leadership because, well we're a voluntary association. You could get angry. You could stop giving. You could leave. You could find somebody else who would tell you that what you're doing is perfectly fine. Or at least the version of it that you told them. How is it That not fearing the loss. I mean, again, just imagine. There's a whole side of me that thinks Adam counted his ribs and figured if Eve dropped dead that he could God could make him another one. So that's the pragmatic reason why you don't say anything. But there might also, and equally be, for those of you who value relationships, uh, that can I really make mad the only other human here? What if I confront my wife, And what if she's angry? And what if she leaves? And what if I don't take the fruit, and she does, and we're not together anymore? I will be alone. The potential motivations for not confronting, and in leadership, not spiritually standing up for our loved ones, can both be pragmatism of, well, if it works out, great. If it doesn't, there's always somebody else. Or the pleasing notion of, I can't imagine not being with this person. And if I confront, and if we raise the issue, and if they disagree, they may leave. Leadership is driven and fearful of both. It can be callous in not speaking because it believes it functionally. If it'll all work out, why ruffle feathers now? Or it may be positively motivated to keep silent because it's afraid of a loss of relationship and a loss of connection. Which leads us finally to the last issue, which is the call. You see, leadership is not about how you keep a group of people together. It's not how you keep a group together. It's how a group is called to be what God has set for them to be. Adam and Eve had a calling to work in and through the world as small c creators, as the psalmist says, even small g gods. You were created to be small g gods, children of God, yet you will die like mere animals, mere men. Cut off from the reality of who you were created to be. It's a calling to be salt and light. It's a calling to work towards Life and light, and against death and silence and pragmatism, and the willingness to allow you to go through pain for my own comfort. The calling is often rather stark. If we jump ahead to Philippians chapter 2, Paul says in that wonderful section, Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, Adam and Eve, strike one, but made himself nothing, strike two, taking on the very nature of a servant. Neither one of them are servants. We all know it was Adam blames God and Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, identifying with us. And becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, one of the challenges is that the leadership that you're called to recognize and embrace may be leadership that calls you to die spiritually, to be reborn in Christ. Emotionally, the things you love in a disordered way because Christ is not the center. We all have idols. We all have those things we love more than Jesus, which is why the Bible calls letting go of those very things death. It feels like death. It is the death of our dead selves, the parts of ourselves that would happily, suicidally leap off the cliff into oblivion because at least we got to say we jumped. Leadership is calling us to die to self, to those idols, to those things that would rob us of real life. Even if in the midst of that, as Paul says, we have suffered the great weight of Paul's words when he says, I fill up in my body what was lacking in Christ's suffering that has nothing to do with the efficacy of Christ's <laughs> sacrifice on our behalf It has everything to do with the fact that we are now participants in the work of the kingdom and that is the work of bringing life out of death. And in the midst of that, there will be suffering. Leadership cannot call us to a place of absolute comfort at the expense of the ethics and the truth of the kingdom of God. We cannot have leadership that tells us peace, peace, where there is no peace. It may tell us, take a deep breath. It may say, be patient. It may encourage us in the fruit of the Spirit, which includes peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, i.e. non-reactionary. And all of those Fruits of the Spirit have the effect of caring for the other. If I'm gentle, not just gentle with myself, gentle with you. Not just patience with myself, but patience with you. Kindness, self-control. What happens when I'm self-controlled? I don't act out of my fear or anger or lust or need and take advantage or abuse you. The calling then of leadership. Course is to follow the calling of Christ. But from our very first challenges of Adam's opportunity to lead and care for Eve, we see in the negative the temptations to be silent when we should comfort, silent when we should confront, and silent when we should call one another follow the king. Leadership has the opportunity to serve as Christ serves, to love as Christ loves. That will not make your life easy, but it will make your calling sure. It will give you a comfort that can never be taken away, and it will allow you to know that as you are confronted... All that you're being called to do is to follow the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do know that all who lead apart from you are fallen. We know that Peter had to regularly be corrected. We know, Lord, that we must serve with transparency and with our hearts open before you and one another. And yet, Lord, we do pray for our leaders, and we pray that you would give us more in this church to care for us, to comfort us, to confront us, and to call us to follow you. All for your glory and the good of our community, of faith, and the community of Newburgh. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.